Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. It might have been. I didn't see a single fish in that one. If you were with us last Sunday, that video was blessed with so many fish, so they were kind of lacking in this video, I found. But um, I was particularly blessed by the enormous smiles that Calvin and Dale have. Uh, I don't know if how many people noticed those, but what a, what a happy bunch of guys. Their faces just tell the world just how happy. Now, if you know them, you know that they're very happy people, but the smiles on the picture were on, in their hearts, I presume. <laughs> As we move into the second message in this series called You've Got a Friend in Me, I know given the family announcement I just shared, there is time needed in our hearts even just for kind of processing and adjusting that. And I just want to say that as a friend of Trevor's and having journeyed with him for two and a half years through some of what he's been grappling with, um, one of the things I deeply, deeply admire in him is how he has through the years of life and ministry, collected a group of excellent friends that surround him. And that's not always an easy thing to do, depending on the career you find yourself in, but he's done an excellent job of it. He has very close friends who live just down the road in Nanaimo. He has a very close friend in Edmonton that he flew out and spent some time with just a couple weeks ago. He's got some close friends here. And if you've been through a difficult time in your own life, you know what it's like to benefit from friends who surround you in that time. It's kind of like air. Most of the time when we're walking around, living our life, we're not thinking, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Isn't that nice that we don't have to think that through? Our bodies just do it. We're not thinking, oh, I need another breath. I better take another breath. I need air right now. We're not thinking that until when? If you go swimming and you, we were playing some sort of diving game off of a dock last summer and we were trying to touch the bottom at some deep areas and it's a little unnerving at times where you get down as deep as you can go and you're like, I still haven't touched the bottom and now there's uh, tension going on in the inside because I want to get to the surface and tell my kids I touched the bottom here. But my brain's giving me new information. I need air. (laughs) And which is it going to be, pride or death? (laughs) And I chose life every time. I didn't touch the bottom. (laughs) But we need air. And sometimes it's in the moments uh, when there's a crisis that we actually realize, I need air right now, right? And you don't want to find yourself in a moment of life where you think, I need friends right now, and I wish I had given more time to that earlier in life. You need to invest in it now, and you need to invest in it always. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And I want to say two things about this text before we get into it. The first is this. If you're new to the book of Acts, the author of the book of Acts obviously is God, um, through a fellow named Luke, who was a doctor, sophisticated, well-educated fellow, who was convinced by the teachings of Jesus that there was a different way of approaching life, faith, and spirituality than the way he previously saw things. It changed his world, 
And being the educated person he was, he figured he could make a contribution and record keep it. So he told the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus through his church in a two-volume series that appears in our Bible, the first being the Gospel of Luke, which is the story of Jesus, and then the book of Acts, which is the story of Jesus' work through the church. And if you follow the flow of Luke's writing through the two-volume piece, Luke-Acts, you see that in the book of Luke, all of Luke's writing is moving towards Jerusalem, to what God is going to do in Jerusalem in Christ's death and his resurrection. And then the movement of the book of Acts has everything to do with Christ's work leaving Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter of a significant work of God, and it's not meant to stay there. It's the opposite of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Jerusalem, what happened in Jerusalem, is meant to go global. And that's what the book of Acts does. There's just this movement outwards of God's work till it's filling the earth. And so when we find ourselves here in chapter 20, the work of the gospel through Jesus' church is spreading quite a ways away from Jerusalem, and it's quite exciting. The text that we're going to read today is a peculiar one. It's going to sound like somebody's uh, notes they wrote on a trip they went on. And I need to give credit to a fellow. Some of you have heard of him. His name's Tim Keller, excellent um, pastor, leader, author, scholarly mind. And in this unique text, he identified a very important framework for spiritual friendships. And I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if I wasn't relaying what's seen, what he's identified in this interesting text for you today. So that's my goal, is just to relay these thoughts and then land in a place that speaks to where we're at in the life and history of our church and our vision and moving forward together. So join me now in Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 36, and then we're going to get our way, uh, get ourselves into verse, chapter 21 all the way to verse 8. Let me also just say this. Prior to um, verse 36, Paul is moving about... <clears throat> And in his travels, he's now meeting up with some pastors or elders from a church in Ephesus. And they're bringing greetings to one another. Paul has had a lot of relationship with them, with their church. He's pouring out his heart to them. He's letting them know, I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. And we're sensing something significant is going to happen in Paul's ministry call here. And if you read the rest of Acts, you understand there is something significant about to happen. There's more trouble and more difficulty for Paul, but it advances the gospel in an interesting way. So after he's poured out his heart to these Ephesian pastors, the text carries on in verse 36 like this. When he had said all this, <clears throat> he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that he would never, or they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, finding disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
Isn't this interesting here, by the way? Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and these people feel compelled by the Spirit to tell them not to. There are interesting discussions to be had in the body of Christ and in friendship, aren't there? Verse 5, but when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. And some of you are saying, how in the world does this passage have anything to do with spiritual friendship? We just heard a bunch of funny city names and we learned a lot about ancient geography and sailing. And within it, I believe there are five thoughts about friendship. Again, many of these relayed to us by the great work of Tim Keller. The first thought that we see in this text for you and I today on the subject of spiritual friendship is this. We need them. You need spiritual friendships. Can I just say to you that your first phone call friends need to be people who love, know, and trust Jesus too. I hope you have many, many friends in your life. I hope you become a great friend of many people who don't know Jesus yet. But when push comes to shove and you're in a difficult state, who are you reaching out to first? Those who are anchored in Christ and have his words of courage to give to you? Or others whose lives are built on other things? You and I need spiritual friendships. It's interesting to note, if you're to read through the book of Acts and follow the story of Paul, who's featured greatly in the text that we've just read, he's not a lone ranger, but he's very busy and he's active. He's moving about, doing a lot of things. But around this point in his story and in his history, and there's several chapters of Acts that follow after this, we keep reading of Paul having more and more close friends. The harder Paul's life and ministry got, the more we find he's surrounded by a cast of close, like-hearted, like-minded, spiritual friends. That's an important lesson for you and I. We should be collecting more and more deeper, spiritual, Christ-anchored friendships through life. You and I need them. Did you ever think of the fact that when God came to earth in Jesus Christ... He could have wandered around Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, and just been a loner because he's way better than all of us. (laughs) But God demonstrated a need for friendship himself by choosing 12 to be in relationship and close to. And I know that sometimes, I don't know about you, but for myself, I'll read through scripture and I'll think, man, it's like Jesus is a little hard on the disciples sometimes. Well, think about this. He's with them all the time. He's God. They're not And they're living out the everyday stuff of life. He's not losing his cool. He's not losing his temper. But he's helping them in their growth. And God needed relationship in the healthiest way possible. And offered it to those 12. We've come out of a series out of Genesis. And I want you to think with me about God's creation of people. And his creation of the need of friendship. Some of us might assume that, well, once the world started falling apart. Once humanity chose their own independence... 
people probably needed each other then. So we found friendships as a crutch to just kind of help us through the hardships of life. It's like a coping mechanism of some kind. But that's not when we find God creating friendship, is it? Does friendship happen after the fall or before? It's before. Friends, before the fall, when God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, Adam was lonely not because he was flawed, but because he was flawless. Wanting friends, wanting friendships is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of health. It's a sign of strength. So the first thought is that we need spiritual friendships. Second thought is this. Spiritual friendships are discovered and not just made. Last week I pointed out that C.S. Lewis, I think, has the greatest three-word definition on friendship, essentially saying, friendship occurs when two people say to each other, what? You too? You discover one another. And friendships are discovered, not just made. How do we see this in this text? One of the places listed that Paul and his friends end up in is called Tyre. And it says that they discovered some disciples there and stayed for seven days. This is remarkable. Why? Paul was known to be a church planter. Prior to this, he had traveled a lot, started many new congregations around that part of the ancient world. But there is no record of Paul ever having pioneered a church in Tyre. These are people they have never met. There were rumors that there was a a church that had formed in Tyre. And so in their travel, they show up near Tyre and they think, well, we should meet them. And they do. And they stay for seven days. Now, again, you need to picture ancient worlds in this time. This isn't like an Airbnb where everybody gets their own room and quiet privacy for seven days. This is communal. These are absolute strangers that they're being housed with for seven days. And there is a friendship that is discovered. How? Because their need wasn't for friendship. Their view was Christ, and that formed a friendship quite naturally for Paul and these believers they were meeting in Tyre. Let me say it this way. Friendship is not kneeling or bowing towards one another in need of friendship. Sort of worshiping or saying, you're the answer to my need of friendship. Friendship is, instead, bowing before the same thing. And discovering that that's what you share in common. Some of you have heard me say this now a couple times, but I'll just refer back to it. In Romans chapter 16, as Paul is concluding his great theological work in this letter to the Roman church, there's all these interesting details about the, the, the person who actually wrote Romans down on the scroll for Paul. His name was Tertius. And he gives this greeting. Paul says, go for it. You can write a greeting there. So Tertius says, hello, I'm Tertius. I wrote this down. And then Tertius includes a few other details. He names a fellow named Gaius, who's not maybe super, super wealthy, but he's wealthy enough that he owns a home. Tertius, you see, comes out of Roman slavery. So he's in that world a nobody. He's got nothing But he's also connected to Gaius, who at least has a home and at least has a table, probably hosts one of the house churches. 
And then who else is mentioned? A fellow named Erastus, who's the director of city public works. So he's really something in the Roman world, but he's part of the church too. So now we have somebody with a slave background, somebody in the working class, and then a high-class Roman official that are all part of the same house church. And then the afterthought is mentioning that a fellow named Quartus also says, hello, who's Quartus? He's number four. Tertius is number three. They're probably slave brothers who got saved and now are part of the same church family. Look at how the work of Christ can bring together the most diverse people. None of them would have looked at each other and thought, you know, we've got so much in common, we should start a small group together. You know, I'm a slave, I have a slave brother, you're in the working class, you've got a home and a table, and you're a high-ranking public official in Rome. We should be in the same small group. That just doesn't make sense in our minds, doesn't it? But when you put Christ in the center of it, suddenly it makes perfect sense. They all belong together. Absolutely they do. I remember in uh, Victoria, where Laura and I were pastoring for many years, we were hosting our own small group, and it was the most diverse, eclectic group of people. And we were on mission together in our neighborhood. We had people who had babies in our group. We had people who met each other in our group and got married. We had teens in our group, young adults in our group. We had seniors in our group. We had young parents. We had people who were wealthy. We had people who definitely were not. And we had this family move um, from the prairies to Victoria. And they began coming to our church. And so we said, oh, why don't you guys come into our small group as well? So they came. And uh, our small group was very, we'd potluck every single week because we were on mission trying to reach people in the neighborhood together. And um, we had a great night and they left this new family. The next week, I spent some time with the gentleman and uh, just wanted to get to know him and his story. And so we're having a nice chat. And he just said, can I just say something about the small group? We came to your small group last week. I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, when we walked in, and they were a very cool young family. um, He said, when we walked in, I looked around with my wife and we're like, who are these people? And he said, I've never seen a more eclectic group of people in the same small group. I I said to my wife, I wouldn't hang out with any one of these people. (laughs) Now, he was just volunteering honest information from his heart. You know what it's like to sometimes show up in a room and make your own judgments too, right? And then he said, we were floored by the unity and the sense of family of such a diverse, different group of people. We loved it. And it was true. For the years that that group existed, we were such a different group of people, but we had something in common. We, too, were kneeling on the beach facing the same Lord. And it didn't matter how different we were from one another, we were united in him. Friendships can be discovered because of being in Christ. I remember um, when I was an arrogant Bible college student and I knew everything and I was in my second semester. (laughs) I already knew everything then. It was impressive. Um, I I, I did one year of school at at a school in Calgary, Bible college there. And, of course, I knew everything because I lived further west than everyone. You know, I was from the west coast, which is much more, we're enlightened over here. And I had to be gracious and merciful to those poor prairie people, some of which were cowboys. Sorry. Um, (laughs) And there was one cowboy in my Bible college. Can you believe it? He hadn't repented of his cowboyness before coming to Bible college. His name was Clarence Steele. 
And I just thought, this is the most different person in the world. And we didn't say a word to each other through the whole two semesters of Bible college until the very last chapel we had at that first year of my Bible college. And we were being led into a communion time. And whoever from the faculty was leading us in that time just said, instead of you just coming forward and receiving communion and taking it on your own, I want you to find somebody else to take it with. And if there are any relationships in the room that need to be repaired, this is a healing time for that. And wouldn't you know what the Holy Spirit spoke to me about Clarence Steele? I didn't like that. And I thought, you want me to set him straight here and help him understand that he doesn't have to be this way? And anyway, sure not. You know, you kind of give time if you've been in a situation like, well, just... I'll kind of aimlessly wander around as if I'm going to somebody else. As it turned out, he didn't have a partner too, and so sure enough, we ended up together. And we just chatted a little bit, and then I just said, oh, I gotta be honest with you, Clarence, and I, I need to apologize. When I met you and saw you the first time, I had all kinds of judgy thoughts rolling through my mind, and that wasn't okay. I'm just so sorry about that. And he said, Mike, Thank you so much, and I appreciate that. And I just need to let you know that when I saw you the first time, man, I had a lot of judgy thoughts too. <laughs> and my goodness, I was very offended in that moment. I couldn't, he, he was wrong, obviously. <clears throat> but you know what happened? In that moment, a cowboy and an arrogant second semester know-it-all found friendship at the table of the Lord and shared in communion together. That's what Jesus can do. C.S. Lewis said, the very condition for having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Keller says this, and it's a little bit strong, but I think you'll understand it. He says this, let me get down to Christianity. One of the reasons why you don't have more friends is that your friendship with God isn't passionate because you're not kneeling on the beach. You and I need friends. And you and I know what it's like in those moments sometimes when we try desperately to find friendships. That pursuit of friendship can kind of get in the way of friendship. And what this text is saying, look at all, twice it occurs that they're kneeling in prayer together. The point being, kneel before Jesus. Let that be your first priority in friendship and look at who God will bring alongside you in common friendship. Not all friendships are made, some are discovered. Now, the third is the inverse of that. Some spiritual friendships are made, not just discovered. In the passage that we've looked at this morning, we read of what is real fellowship. If you read in Acts chapter two, the last portion of Acts chapter two, after the spirit is poured out, there's this beautiful selection of four or five verses, 42 to 47, that talk about what church life was like for that first church in Acts. And it's just robust in relationship. It says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. When you hear the word fellowship, if you've been part of a, a church family for a long time, you might think of like, funny tasting juice in a church basement and stale cookies and stuff like that. That's not fellowship. 
You might think, well, maybe fellowship equals socializing. Biblical fellowship is not just socializing. The word used for fellowship in the book of Acts in the New Testament is this Greek word koinonia. It almost bet, could be better translated into the word community, not fellowship. And it really means, koinonia means to share. It's the sharing that makes fellowship happen. So what kind of sharing do we see in this Acts text? We see these people, when you reread this text this week, notice how they share their feelings. They're weeping with each other. Who do you weep with? When you weep with others, if they're in Christ, friends, that's koinonia. They're sharing their feelings. They're sharing their things. Here are these people, Christians, followers of Christ in the city of Tyre. And along comes Paul and a group of his companions, and they're probably saying, hey, we've heard of you. Come stay in our house. We'll provide bedding for you. We'll provide food for you. They shared their things with them. They shared their faith with each other through prayer. They share decision-making together. Isn't it, wasn't it interesting to note how Paul is feeling convinced by the Spirit he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, and some of the other believers are like, no, we feel compelled by the Spirit that you're not. Does that mean the Spirit's giving mixed messages? Not necessarily. It just means that a community needs to work at making decisions together. Friends need that. They share decision-making together. Do you notice that Paul doesn't say, mind your own business, I'm the Apostle Paul. <laughs> He listens to them. And if you were to read further on in the text, there's another person that has a prophetic word of the kind of way that Paul is going to be um, put into bondage and treated if he goes to Jerusalem. A lot of people would think, oh, that's bad prophecy, or Paul, this means you shouldn't go. To Paul, it actually was confirmation. I should go. I'm on the right path. Wow. They share their time with each other. Even when they're in hardship, Paul's journey gets worse and worse and worse, and he keeps having friends around him. You know what it's like to have seen friends go through hard times. You've been in hard times yourself. When you've gone through a hard time, I'll tell you who matters to you. It's the ones that stick, stick it out with you, not the ones who kind of ditch you because they got uncomfortable, right? Look at Paul's journey. It gets worse and harder, and there's people that get closer. Be that kind of friend to others. Be the kind of one that says, when it's difficult, I'm still with you. Be the kind of one that if we get upset or move on from someone and say, I've had it with you, that we realize that's not the right approach. That's me having been in a relationship for what I can get out of it. I didn't actually love them. I just loved what I was getting out of it. Love people enough to love them enough in the hard times where you get nothing out of that friendship. You're just helping, listening, giving. Spiritual friendships are not just made, they are also discovered. Fourth thing is this, spiritual friendships must include the everyday life kind of stuff. <clears throat> it is essential in spiritual friendships that they're not surfacy, that the people who are in your life, I want you just to think about who would be some of the people you would consider spiritual friends in your life, not just people that you're in the same small group with or whatever, people who know you at the deepest level. They need to have access to the everyday stuff of life in your world. I'm not saying people should be controlling one another's lives, but you need to see each other's lives and you need to see into each other's lives. If the only time you see other people in spiritual friendship is Sunday at church 
or during your small group meeting, you're really not seeing each other in everyday life. You're seeing each other in Bible mode and worship mode and all the other spiritual kind of modes that are in that. You need to be able to see each other in the other modes of life too. Notice the pattern that Jesus sets for us in discipleship. Along comes God wanting to change the world, so he walks along a beach, doesn't pick the best people out there and build an all-star team. He picks the people who've been passed by. He finds fishermen who didn't get selected by a local rabbi to have a spiritual future. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me. So of course they leave everything behind because the rabbi actually came to them and said, I believe you could do what I do. They're like, wow. So he selects a whole bunch of misfits and disciples them. And how does Jesus disciple them? Wednesday night Bible study, right? On their men, so Saturday morning men's breakfast too. No. How does he do it? He just keeps carrying on into the everyday stuff of life with them and includes them. And you and I read the highlight real stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? This miracle occurred and these feedings happened and Jesus did this and Jesus paid taxes and all these different things. What's happening in the midst of that? The disciples are watching. What else is happening in the midst of that? A whole lot of like monotonous stuff, like going for a long walk from one town to the other. Have you ever been on a road trip with people? How about misfits? (laughs) Ever been on a road trip with misfits? This is what Jesus is doing. It doesn't go well generally when you're on a road trip with immature people. It tests each other, doesn't it? That's why you should come on the missions trip to Guatemala. You will grow spiritually. You will, because we're in the everyday stuff of life together. We're stuck in airports together. We're stuck in humid conditions together. This is what's going on for Jesus in his discipleship mode. His discipleship didn't incur in classes. It happened on the road as they're walking, as they're talking. It happened as Jesus paid a temple tax and his disciples thought, huh, look at him. He's actually financially supporting the institution that's opposed to him. They're thinking about how to handle money then. They're eating together. They're sleeping together. It's not like their digestive systems all shut off for the three years that they were following Jesus. There were burps. There were other sounds. There were other smells. There were other interruptions going on. (laughs) It was very real. Okay, maybe that's a bit more graphic than most of us want in a friendship. But you go on a road trip with some misfits, (laughs) and you have to open the window every once in a while. While Jesus was discipling those 12, they were each observing the best and the worst in each other. They were eating together. They were able to see punctuality. They were able to see spending habits. They were able to see how each other treated the spouse, children that were involved. They saw into each other's lives. They saw each other's lives. So the question is, who sees your life? Who sees into your life? And whose life are you seeing into and seeing? And when spiritual friends see into each other's lives and see each other's lives, they help each other. They help each other grow as followers of Christ. There's an important word. I don't know if you picked it up. In the text that we read today, there's an important word that occurs 12 times. And lots of scholars and academics have noticed that it appears often in random places In the book of Acts, Luke uses an interesting two-letter word. Somebody in the room knows what it is. What is it? We. 
Luke is now writing this story as an eyewitness. Why? I was part of the group. I went and we had that sleepover for seven nights with those people in Tyre. And then we got on the ship and I heard people saying, Paul, you shouldn't do it. And I knew it was going to get harder for Paul, but I thought, I'm not ditching him. I'm going with him. And we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that. Paul was part of a we. Luke was part of a we. Are you part of a we? Yes, I know many of you have a spouse and they're your closest confidant and friend and you grow spiritually together. God bless you and God bless that. It must be foundational. But friends, if you're a gentleman, you need other gentlemen, one or two of them at least, to journey in life with and be a we with. Ladies, if you're a lady... You need at least one or two that you can bond at a heart level with, go deep into the things of life with, and be a we together. So if you know that maybe you're lacking in this area, like how do you, how do you grow, how do you move forward in this? Two thoughts, really simple, I think. First is this, start by just having more fun together with people who follow Jesus. It's okay to have a lot of fun together. Go to movies, go kayaking once spring finally shows up. Um, do some fun things together. And then, number two, and you can't miss this one, resist being shallow, resist being insincere, become more transparent. This will help you. This will help others. If you're familiar with our church vision booklet and as we've dialogued through the last several months about our, our mission statement, and our values, we have seven values. This little booklet concludes in the final page with four things we feel everyone in CPC is called to. If we all did these four things, it would help us see fulfillment of what God's called us to envision as a church family. So what are those four things? You ask, you see on the screen. Number one, Jesus. We are all called to Jesus. Number two, we're all called to Sundays. This is an environment where we are equipped for a life of mission and ministry, and where we encounter God together in worship. And number four, we're all called to gospel intentionality together. If that's new language to you, you can read about it in here. So what is the third thing that we're all called to? DNA relationships. DNA relationships. We believe this is massively important, so much so that we believe everyone in CPC. Can everybody say me? Every me in CPC needs to become a we. What are DNA relationships? DNA stands for this, discipleship, nurturing, and accountability. What does discipleship mean? Beholding Jesus together in the Bible and in conversations together. What does nurturing mean? It's care. <laughs> you need one or two other people of the same gender who are courageous enough to say, how are you really doing? and then pray together. And the more safe you feel in those spiritual friendships, what happens? You begin being able to open up your soul more and more and more. And accountability. Now that's one of those words that for some people they're like, I do not like that word. <laughs> no thanks. Let me just say this about accountability. Accountability is not suspicion. <laughs> it's not committing yourself to one or two other people and then being constantly suspicious that they're probably sinning, so you have to check in on them all the time. That's counterproductive. Accountability, 
Accountability is being close enough to others that when you're struggling or when there's difficulty, you know who you can phone first or text first and say, please pray. You need that and I need it. Accountability is not about discovering the dirt in other people's lives. It's far too obvious and easy to do that. What a spiritual friend can do is identify the gold that's buried deep in their life and bring that to the surface of their life. I don't know why they have a knife in them, but uh, if they have a knife in them, consider taking it out. If it's too, call 911 if you don't want to do that, though. Accountability isn't the most popular word, but let me just say this, and I wonder if you'd agree with me. Humans are at their best when they are accountable. Humans are at their best when they are accountable. Can you imagine political leadership without accountability? Some of you are like, I I don't have to imagine that. (laughs) Can you imagine any leadership without accountability? Can you imagine charities or churches without accountability? Can you, parents, imagine children without accountability? Well, if we believe that it can be really good for the rest of the world to be accountable, it can't be this. Everybody must be accountable except me. Because I think if we are honest, we kind of do at times carry this core value of like, yeah, I do actually believe accountable is very necessary, important for the whole human race. Just not me, thank you very much. No, me too. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, that an enemy multiplies kisses, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wow, can I say that again? Proverbs 27, 6 says, enemies, an enemy will multiply kisses, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. What does that mean? An enemy will always stab you in the back, but a spiritual friend they'll stab you in the front. (laughs) And I mean it. I mean it. Too many of us don't have a friend close enough. There's the knife. That makes sense now. That's why there's a knife in you. The friend, the spiritual friend put it there. You and I, you and I, I need you to say me one more time. You need people who are close enough to you in spiritual friendship that when needed, they grab the knife, not as an enemy stabbing you in the back, but as a friend in the front and say, can I talk about something hard with you? I've noticed how your family responds to you when you're this way. Is, is this okay? Or can, can I help? Can we pray about this? Is there something that needs healing in your life? Uh, you see, a spiritual friend will go there with some, not to hurt somebody, not to harm them, but to care. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. I remember when I hit a wall in my life several years ago emotionally, and many of you know who Doug Frederick is. He's come and spoke here several times. He was a friend who sat in my office with me, picked up a knife, and plunged it into my soul. And he said, Mike... Have you dealt with the pain of that particular loss in your life yet? And I didn't want to hear that question. I didn't think there was a lot to it. But boy, was he right. And the wound from that friend was very trustworthy. Who do you have in your life in spiritual friendship that you take a knife and you give it to them and you say, if there's something you see in me that needs to be dealt with, 
you've got the knife. There are two essentials for DNA relationships. Number one, intentionality. Friends, you don't get into DNA relationships by accident. (laughs) DNA relationships are as accidental as going to the dentist. How many of you have just been like, oh my goodness, the next thing I knew, I was there in the chair and my mouth was gaping wide open. There was tools in my face. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) That does not happen by accident. How did you get in the chair? How did all that happen? You made an appointment. You made a decision. Even though you didn't want to go to the dentist, you knew it was going to be good to you and for you. DNA relationships require intentionality and then they also require rhythm. They don't just happen as an as-needed basis. You need to add a little bit of rhythm to them. I heard such a great story this week from a DNA group in our church. They're like a little coffee club, three guys. Dale's one of them. Rob Benson is another. Rob's not here this morning. And one of them shared something personal from their life. And so as a group of three gentlemen, they said, well... We're going to pray for you right now. And so the third gentleman said, why don't we just take a moment to all pray in our spiritual heavenly language that God's given us first, and then we're going to pray over this issue. And so Dale nods his head, sure, yeah. And Rob says, and he gave me permission, I talked with him this morning, he said, "Uh, I don't have a prayer language. And so that group was... They were real judgy, right? No, they were like, oh, okay, why don't you just, you just pray in English? That's cool. And so they started praying together, two of them in the spirit, Rob Benson in English. And moments later, Rob told me on the phone this morning, he said, all of a sudden words were coming out of my mouth I had never heard, I did not know. And he was baptized in the spirit with a prayer language right in that moment, not in a Sunday service, but in the everyday stuff of life, as three guys with knives in their hands were gathered together in prayer. That's the body of Christ. Oh, I love it. Last thought is this from the text. Spiritual friendships are forever. We read in the text that there's grief experienced by those who have heard Paul say, I'm never going to see you again as they say goodbye. But notice this, there's not panic. There is a peace. Why? (laughs) Because they know that in Christ they will see each other together again. Proverbs 18.24 declares this, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What is Proverbs talking about? It's talking about a kind of friendship that you and I can have with God through Jesus Christ and him alone. Friends, Jesus is the greatest friend you or I could ever have. Jesus is the one who sees our everyday life, who sees all in our life and keeps offering friendship. Jesus is the one who brings true koinonia to our lives. Think of all that he's shared with your life and with mine. He shares his time. He shares his heart. He shares all of his love. He shared his life to the point of death. He shared his blood. He shared his body. He gives all in friendship to you and I. Think about how friendship with Jesus is made through his sharing, but it's also discovered Some people, you've heard them talk about coming to the Lord, and they're like, once I finally surrendered to Jesus, it was as if I realized he's always actually been there. 
It's as if I've known him for a lifetime already. And friends, Jesus is the friend that is needed most. This is the good news for you and I, is that this first friendship is available to all of us. It can be strengthened again today. I want to invite you to stand with me now. I want to lead us in a prayer as we conclude. As you stand, whoever's with us helping on our prayer ministry team can come forward today. There might be two responses at least today. The first being this. Some of you may think, you know, I'm not sure if I have this whole friendship with Jesus thing sorted out. But if it's available to me, I need that today. I want to pray with you and I want to pray for you. And the other group I want to think about today is all of us, actually. I think it's relevant for all of us to be thinking about who are your DNA relationship people. I'm not just talking about you being good at life group attendance or small group attendance. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking smaller than that. Who are the one or two of the same gender that you are very close with, that you're growing spiritually with, that you're in Scripture with, you're beholding Jesus together with? They care for you. There's accountability. If you don't know, then today is the time for you to consider what your next step needs to be. And I want to pray for you in that. Father, today, we all just take a moment to pause and acknowledge our need for friendships, for spiritual friendships. Thank you that in the garden when you created Adam, it was in his completeness that he needed friendship, not in his incompleteness. And so I bless in each person here the need for friendship, the joy, the strength, the help that's found in friendship. Father, for those who are lacking even just connections and a sense of friends, I pray that you would supply, that you would help us to be a people who kneel on the beach facing the living Lord Jesus Christ and discover friendship with one another along the way. There are some who just, we don't have those DNA relationships yet, and so we're asking for your help with that. Spirit, would you inspire us? Would you help us to take initiative and to grow in this direction this year? Father, above all, we thank you for the gift of your friendship you give to us. Bless each one as we live off of that. Now as we go into your world on your mission, we declare our dependence upon you. We need you. We want to see the love, the life, the ministry, the message of Jesus that's overwhelmed us move into the everyday stuff of life in the Comox Valley this week, touching our community. We need your spirit's empowerment and presence for all this, and we need one another. Bless each person, I pray today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Why don't you turn to a friend who's nearby, give a smile and a handshake or a punch or just pretend to pull a knife. You know what that means? I don't know. God bless you. If you need prayer for anything today, this team would love to pray for you today. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.